things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the latest edition of the Stephen A. Smith Show. We're here in my studio thanks to our official studio sponsor, FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel is the official sports betting company of the Stephen A. Smith Show. Make sure to like and follow the Stephen A. Smith Show right here on YouTube. Click the bell to get notified of all of our new content. And thank you very much for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. By the way, be sure to pick up my copy of my New York Times bestselling book, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. You know, from time to time, I like to talk to change makers on this podcast. People will make a difference in the world. My guest for this episode is absolutely one of them. I recently sat down with the governor of the great state of Maryland for an insightful and candid interview. Check it out. My guest is a Rhodes Scholar. He's a best-selling author, decorated combat veteran, former White House fellow, and the 63rd governor of the state of Maryland. He's the, he has the added distinction of being the first black governor in the state's 246-year history and only the third African-American elected governor in the history of the United States. It is my honor and privilege to welcome to the Stephen A. Smith Show, the governor of the wonderful state of Maryland, Mr. Wes Moore. Governor, how are you, sir? How's everything? I'm, I'm blessed, Stephen A. Listen, the honor's all mine. Man, please, please, please. The honor is all mine. Thank you so much for joining the show. Let's get right to it. I mean, you succeeded uh, Larry Hogan. Obviously, he was the former Republican governor of the state. How would you say your administration has differed from the previous one? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I tell you, when I when I first came on board to be governor, mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, this is the first elected office that I had ever run for, wow. first elected office that I had ever held. Uh, I didn't come from a political family. I don't come from a, a political background. I, I, my, my background was I led soldiers in, in combat as a member of the Army. I, I ran a successful small business uh, here in, in Maryland. I led one of the largest poverty fighting organizations in this country. And, and I knew that the approach that we were going to take was we were actually going to build, build an approach that says, how do you essentially help to depoliticize politics, mm. right? But I have run things before, and I know that there was never a, a, a political lens in the way that I have run things before, in the way that we made impact happen. So I wasn't going to bring that to the way that I was approaching my work here in Maryland. Mm. And so if you look at our first legislative session, you know, we ended up introducing 10 bills in our first legislative session, and we went 10 for 10 on all the bills that we put together. And by the way, we went 10 for 10 bipartisan. Wow. So we got Democrat and Republican support on all 10 of the bills that we introduced 
in the legislature. Well, name itself. a few of them. Name a name a few of them, Governor. So we could because it's rare That's that we law. we well, hear so we hear that we hear that we it's rare that we hear agreement on bipartisan lines in, in, in this day and age. So please tell us what you got both sides to agree on with this. I want to hear some of these. <laughs> Well, so for example, now Maryland, Maryland is the first state in the country that has a service year option for our high school graduates. Mm -hmm. So they can now have a year of service to the state of Maryland after they finish high school. Okay. And, and, and we did it because we will, I'm a big believer in experiential learning. We did it because this is going to provide all those students a, 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 a earned financial buffer as they move on and transition into whatever it is they want to do next. Because while we have some of the best four-year schools in the country, I'm also a big believer that not all of our students need to attend one mm. uh, in order to be economically successful. Right. And we did it because I also believe deeply that service in this kind of political divisiveness and vitriol, that service will help to save us. And so Maryland's now the first state in this country that has a service year option for all high school for all high school graduates. Maryland is the first state in the country now that has a pathway for free dental care and health care. For members of the Maryland National Guard, because I just don't believe that if a person is serving in the National Guard, they should not have to worry about having dental care mm. or having health care. Uh, Maryland now, we're now we're now a state that has a $15 minimum wage because gone should be the days when we have people, particularly people who are working multiple jobs and still living at or below a poverty line. So that bill alone just lifted over 160,000 Marylanders up the next rung on the economic ladder. So we're really focusing on how are we coming up with pathways for economic stability? How are we coming up with ways that's creating not just work, but wages and wealth for all Marylanders? But how are we also doing it in a way that really focuses on the issues and focusing on data and not necessarily focusing on politics? I got to ask you, I mean, that 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 sounds absolutely wonderful and you to be commended for that. But one one it, it begs the question how you got involved in politics to begin with, because like you said, you never ran for office before. You, you, you weren't thinking about this. What made you say I need to be? in the governor's chair in the state of Maryland. Is there one defining incident or moment that really galvanized you, your family, your loved ones, the community itself? Is there something that stood out in your mind that made you take this leap? Because it is a leap. Make no mistake about it, a good one, but nevertheless, still a leap. You know, I, I tell you, I remember there was um, something happened where we were working on, uh, on the, the child tax credit and getting the child tax credit adjustment so it can be permanent because the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit are two of the most effective poverty fighting tools that we have found in this country to be able to address the issue of child poverty. And, and I was actually working with a former governor on this issue and trying to explain to him why if the state could actually match the child tax credit, what would actually do, where it literally would help cut the child poverty rate, you know, almost in half if a state could match that. We worked for six months gave him all the data, all the research, literally said in the state of the state, you should talk about this. And here's the line you should use in the state of the state. And I get an advanced copy of the state of the state address. And there's nothing in there about the child tax credit, nothing in there about child poverty at all. So I'm hot, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, I'm calling up my head of public policy and I'm not happy about this. And this is an older, older organization that I was running. Okay. Um, you know, park riding organization. And after I finished my diatribe, uh, and I paused. He said to me, he said, listen, we've been working for six months to try to get them to include a line in the speech. A line. And he said, what if you could write the whole speech? And that was the whole point. And literally two weeks after 
my inauguration as the 63rd governor of the state of Maryland, I gave my first state of the state address where we committed in that state of the state that we would have the most aggressive and full frontal and bipartisan attack on child poverty that the state of Maryland has ever seen. And that's exactly what we've done. And so that was the big push for me was I said in this moment, I can push, I can advocate, I can scream, I can do all that, or you can get in the arena. Mm. And that's exactly what we chose to do. That's something that Barack Obama, a former president, was very, very famous for saying. You know, you got to get in the arena when he was giving the speech at the Democratic National Convention. You got to get in the arena with it. It's not about, yes, he will. It's about, yes, we can. I'll never forget that. That was a spectacular speech, and he was absolutely right about that. But you look at a lot of politicians in this day and age, and a lot of people, I don't think that I've ever seen the climate is salty towards politicians as it is today. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you so badly because it's one thing to want to get in the arena. It's one thing to want to make a difference. It's even one thing to believe you can make a difference. But it's another thing entirely when you witness the climate and even as you're getting things done, people may not see it for what it is, at least originally, and the vitriol and the venom that comes associated with the skepticism they have towards politicians puts a lot of people in very uncomfortable or dare I say dangerous positions in this day and age. The level of fear is clearly not something you were too concerned about. Speak to why that is. You know, I, I've, uh, I remember thinking about this and people said, they're like, you know, listen, it's, it's tough going into this arena. And you're right. I mean, the level of political vitriol and even political violence um, that we have seen, it is real. Uh, and it needs to be approached. Uh, it needs to be approached head on. Mm-hmm. But I think there's two things that I, I kind of continue to think about. Um, you know, one is, you know, I, I spent I spent my, my first part of my career. I was I was a paratrooper. Wow. the 82nd Airborne Division. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen this. And I've seen also the, the complications of what happens if we do nothing. Mm. If we just allow this, this wave to continue to flow and we're not able to step up. But the thing about it also that I remember was, you know, I listened to, when I would listen to our neighbors and I'd listen to, to the people out there who I was working with in the communities on these issues, this frustration is real, but it's also justified. Mm-hmm. Because all they're simply asking for is, I want the people who are helping to make this decision, I want them to see me. I want them to hear me. I want them to understand what's been going on in some cases, what's been going on for generations in my family or in my community or in my neighborhood. And not just to sit there and put together ideas and political talking points, but to actually come up with solutions that are helping to make my life better. And so I, I think about that all the time where, you know, Stephen A., when I first ran for this office, I ran in a very competitive primary. I ran against people who were statewide elected officials, mm-hmm. people who were cabinet secretaries, people who were the former heads of the DNC. I mean, I had a whole bunch of people. And then me, yeah. who never held office before. So I was never the choice of, of, of an establishment. I was never handpicked to come do this. My power came from the people. And I never forget that when I'm making the decisions because the people, the frustration that so many people feel, it is real and it is justified. And I'm here to say in this seat, I hear you and I see you. And it's the reason that we're moving with the sense of intentionality. It's the reason we're moving with a sense of urgency because that, that, that realization, but also the belief that we actually can do better. We can be more thoughtful. Right. We can be more inclusive. I believe it to my core. 
And I think here in Maryland, we're showing even in our earliest days, in our first six months, that we can actually do better. But the only way we're going to do it is if we change the dynamic in the way we've been doing business as usual before. Well, you sound like a politician that's about trying to get things done, trying to, you know, you're, you're, you're putting you're putting action forth. And it's a beautiful thing because as a governor, you're a part of the people. You're in that climate. You can reach out and touch them. You know, they can reach out and touch you. And that's what you want. When you look at Capitol Hill, they seem like a distant foreign land. But in the same breath, they're running our lives. And only then the only thing they seem to be interested in is opposing the other side as opposed to really getting things done. But I'll ask you this question. Before I get into some other things about the state of Maryland specifically, one of the things that you just said that I, I don't know if you realize this, but that, that, that that's one of the reasons they voted for Trump, because he wasn't a politician. You know, he wasn't a part of that political apparatus. He wasn't a part of the establishment, per se. And as a result of that, they said, good, because we don't trust those folks. So let's take him, regardless of how trifling he's appeared at times. OK, many times in your case, that's not the case at all. But still in all, you just highlighted how you're not the typical person. You're not a politician. You're not a career politician. It's the first time you ever ran for office and you're distant and apart from all of those public elected officials that you were competing against. Do you think that's what message the country is sending? We don't want these politicians anymore. We want people like Westmore, period. That's really what they're saying as far as I'm concerned as it pertains to the state of Maryland. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I remember when I first uh, got into this, someone said to me, they're like, so what made you want to be a politician? And I said, I didn't. I wanted to be governor. Mm. (laughs) That's a good answer. It's a good answer. (laughs) Because I look at it because you're right. Right. I mean, like, you know, when I think about when I think about this work and when I think about what we do every single day, our ability to go out there and lead that in a way that actually touches the people, you know, every single day I go to bed knowing Knowing and and meeting the people who every single day, the decisions that we have made in our administration, this has impacted their lives and their families. Or I go to bed every single night thinking about the people who reached out to me who said that they are still struggling or they're still feeling pain. And so my job then is to wake up the next morning and to say, all right, what are we going to do to actually address that? And so I think that there is a way of, of actually taking the work that we are doing. And I believe deeply that the people who are closest to the challenge are the ones closest to the solutions. They're just hardly ever at the table. Mm. And that's the type of frame that we're trying to change in the way that we're doing our work here, the way we're thinking about education, the way we're thinking about public safety, the way we're thinking about transportation and housing, because the people who are on the ground, the people who've been dealing with these challenges, the real experts, you know, I'll say here, the experts are not the people with the, all the letters after them. Right. Right. Give me people with lived experience mm. because these are the experts. And so when we ran on an idea, the whole mantra that we pulled together was leave no one behind, which actually I learned in the military when I was right. 17 years old when I first joined the military. And we've really been trying to show that leave no one behind is not just a mantra. Leave no one behind is a governing philosophy because that's the way we can think about this work. And if you have that in your lens, that's the way you're going to ensure that we can show people that politics is not something to shun or nor something to be afraid of, nor do you just run to the thing that's speaking the loudest, uh, bashing the system. But it's about how can we make the system actually work for people in their lives now and for generations to come.
This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Let's transition to specifics about the state of Maryland, because I remember on your website, it states that Maryland has the seventh highest firearm homicide rate in the country. I recently spoke about the shootings in Baltimore and what have you. I was appalled by it. Obviously, Baltimore is not the only place where it happens. It happens happening throughout the streets of America, St. Louis, New Orleans, Chicago, the list goes on and on. And it's incredibly alarming. And obviously, you spoke about that. I remember you giving a statement about that as well, along with the mayor of Baltimore, Mayor Scott. Uh, as we sit here today as the governor of Maryland, how concerned are you about homicides, particularly firearm homicides in the state of Maryland? And what what steps have you taken to, to address the issue? I'm incredibly concerned about it. And that's one of the big motivations that I had to get into this race in the first place. Um, you know, Maryland, we've gone down now in our state. This is now eight straight years where we have seen over the past eight years, the homicide rate in the state of Maryland has nearly doubled. Mm. The, level, the rate of non-fatal shootings in the state of Maryland over the, past eight, over the past eight years has nearly doubled. We've gone on in the city of Baltimore, eight straight years of 300 plus homicides in the city of Baltimore. Wow. And when I think about the, the idea that it is so easy to get your hands on a firearm, even for our children to get their hands on a firearm. When I think about the fact that we have, that, that we have individuals who are repeat violent offenders who continue to find their ways on the streets. We've been very clear from our early days of our administration that we are taking a different type of approach because what we have seen over these past years in the state of Maryland, it will not stand in our time. And so that's why we've had a clear focus on doing things like getting these repeat violent offenders off of our streets and getting these illegal firearms out of our neighborhoods. It's the reason that we put, you know, additional focus where we put an additional $122 million going towards local law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Because we have to have law enforcement who are on the ground who are helping to do the job and keeping communities safe. But then also knowing that it's not just about sentencing, that's about all the other factors that's creating a lack of hope in communities. Because if you do not have hope, you will have violence. Mm. And so we have to be able to address both those two things simultaneously. I appreciate you saying that because you're absolutely right about that hope, you know, you know, disintegrating into violence. There's no doubt about it. A lack of hope, rather. But one of the things that I think it's important as a, as a mayor, a Democratic, I'm sorry, governor, a Democratic governor of the state of Maryland, when people hear law and order, when they hear about how we have to address crimes in our streets, and then they see somebody or hear from someone that's on the Democratic side, that's on the left, these are the assumptions. And I emphasize that word assumptions because damn it, half the time they don't know. So I got a governor on the air with me right now that's going to that's gonna educate them. They hear woke culture. They hear, you know, the emphasis on rehabilitation as opposed to incarceration. They hear about Oh, you know, you know, bails, you know, that not a, a de-emphasizing of 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 this criminalization to some degree. People not being incarcerated, not being punished for crimes, crimes being committed in the streets. They're out in jail, out of jail in hours, uh, easy to get firearms and stuff like that. The right will bring up. Hey, you got to protect yourself. That's why this stuff is really going on in the streets of America, because they're talking about taking away your guns. But the bad guys always get guns and the Dems never get that. And that's why you look at some of these states and that's where the lawlessness even takes place. Now, we all know 
That's not entirely true. But nevertheless, that's their message. What's your message comparing Democrats to Republicans when it comes to fighting crimes and keeping our streets safe, not just throughout the state of Maryland, but in America overall? Uh, and, I, and, I, and I love you said that you said that because it's true. I mean, we we oftentimes get asked to be put inside these boxes. Mm-hmm. And, and the only people who live in a binary world, the only people who ask people to make choices, frankly, are, 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 are politicians and pundits. Yes. Right? That, is, that is one or the other. You right. know, it's like, do you believe in mental health or do you believe keeping communities safe? Right. It's like, it's not a choice. <laughs> I believe in both. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think about it where even, even in, in our race, right? And people were trying to figure out how exactly we did it. We ended up winning with the largest margin in, in, in 40 years in, in the state of Maryland, we ended up winning, I ended up receiving more individual votes than anyone who ran for governor in the history of the state wow. of Maryland wow. and ended up receiving endorsements from everyone from Progressive Maryland and the police union. Mm. And people like, how in the world did you end up getting endorsements from, from, from all these groups like that? And I said, because what we're talking about is common sense. What I'm saying is, you know what our communities are asking for? Our communities are saying we have got to get these illegal guns out of our streets. We've got to get these illegal guns out of our neighborhoods. And we have to make sure we're funding public safety and funding public education and making sure that our children have a pathway. That we have to that we have to make sure we're funding behavioral health and mental health because the majority of 911 calls actually have some form of behavioral or mental health component to it. And at the same time, we have to make sure that people are being held accountable when you have offenders, particularly these violent offenders and repeat violent offenders who continue to terrorize Mm -hmm. neighborhoods. I'm not choosing. And the reason I'm not choosing is because my neighbors and community members, they're not asking me to. Mm -hmm. They're not asking me to fall into one of these boxes. What they're simply saying is treat this challenge with the same type of urgency and with the same type of sincerity that the challenge actually requires, that the talking points, people are done. People are tired. Yeah. I'm tired of it. So am I. And so how do we take an all of the above approach mm-hmm. in the way we're actually dealing with public safety is the way we're addressing this here in Maryland. It's a, not that this particular subject has, you know, it's, it, it, I think it speaks to your point, but I'm just going to go real, real far left with what I'm about to say. I was sitting on this show, this very show of mine, and I told uh, ladies, I said, America, I'm against abortion, but I'm completely pro-choice. Hey, wait, you gotta be, but you can't be both. You gotta be one or the other. Yes, I can. I can be against abortion, but completely agree, believe in a woman's right to choose because I have no business making that decision. Yes, I can. And they were trying to say, no, you cannot. I said, well, you know what? Watch. Watch when I go to the polls. That's how that's how it's gonna come across. And I just left it at that. So I get your point about not living in that binary world. They they, they try to make you make a choice one or the other. No, we can do both. But I, I, I let me transition to you because New York Times uh, a best-selling memoir in 2010. I, I was reading this a little bit. The other Westmore, one name, two fates. I want you to educate my audience about your book um, and, and just give us a little uh, a brief history about it. Just tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, so this was actually a, a story um, about uh, about really two, uh, two, two young men. And, uh, and around the same time, that I had uh, received a Rhodes Scholarship, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Baltimore Sun, which is actually my hometown paper, mm-hmm. uh, ended up writing uh, an article about how I had just received this Rhodes Scholarship and a bit about 
my background, how I was, you know, born born in Maryland, but uh, but my father died in front of me when I was three years old, mm-hmm. and uh, and how my mother then moved us up to uh, the Bronx to go live with my grandparents. My grandfather was a minister, wow. and my grandmother was a school teacher, okay. uh, an immigrant to this country, mm-hmm. and uh, and how I got in a lot of trouble when I was young. I mean, the first time that I felt handcuffs on my wrist was when I was eleven years old. Yeah. And um, but through a lot of help and support, I was now uh, I now returned uh, returned back to Maryland, and I was now on my way to Oxford to receive a Rhodes Scholarship. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, uh, a, a person was involved in a botched jewelry store robbery, and um, and in the process ended up murdering uh, an off-duty police officer. Was involved in the murder of an off-duty police officer. Uh, he and four other individuals. And, um, and the person who the police were looking for was captured and tried and convicted for this crime. Uh, his name was also Wes Moore. Mm. And uh, I ended up uh, learning about him because of my mother, who actually uh, who uh, told me that there were wanted posters in, in, in my neighborhood and they were looking for a person named Wes Moore. And uh, though I got curious and I knew the only person that could answer the questions that I had um, was from him. So I wrote him a note. And he wrote me, uh, and a month later, I received a letter back. Uh, and uh, it was from Wes, who was just starting uh, a life sentence for felony murder conviction. Him, um, his older brother, who, who was actually the, the trigger man and two other people. And, um, and so uh, it began these letters that we went back and forth. Eventually, those letters turned into dozens of visits. Uh, and I have uh, now known, known Wes for, uh, for, for, for almost two decades. Mm-hmm. And the story was really about... Uh, not just the, uh, the, 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 the evolution of these two boys, but it was really also about how thin that line is between our life and someone else's life. Mm. It's about the influence that not just, uh, you know, not just the, the, about the decisions the person makes, but the people who that person has in their life that helps them to make those decisions. Right. Whereas I'm getting ready to head off to England on a road scholarship, the other West Moore is now getting ready to spend the rest of his life in prison. Mm. And so it really was a journey into manhood, a journey into adulthood, and the role that all of us have in order to create futures for our young people to be able to help to determine their destinies, Mm -hmm. because the decisions that they make they are going to have impacts on each and every one of us. And the, deci- and the decisions that they make a l- in large part sometimes are influenced by the company you keep because That's you got exactly the right, right people. You got That's the right exactly people around right. you. You avoid making the wrong decisions. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? That wasn't the only book you wrote. Your latest book is called Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, which tells the story from different perspectives of Baltimore in the days following Freddie Gray's death. Why did you feel compelled to write that? Mm. Well, you know, I'm a I'm, I'm a very proud Baltimorean. <laughs> and um, and and I remember I remember during that time where I was literally I went to Freddie Gray's funeral in the morning. And, um, and Freddie Gray, just for background, Freddie Gray um, was a, a 25-year-old man who, who died in police custody, right. um, who was killed in police custody, Yes, uh, where, uh, where he was chased by the, by the police, um, put in the back of a van. And by the time that they pulled him out of the back of the van, had a, uh, had a severed spine yep. and, a, and a crushed larynx. 
and eventually uh, and went to a coma and then never made it out of the coma. And, and I remember how there were weeks that there was protests that were taking place in Baltimore, eventually, and, and generally all peaceful protests. But eventually one night, the night actually of his funeral, were, was the night when those protests were no longer peaceful. Mm. And, and I remember speaking with people from all walks of life mm. uh, about this, whether it was protesters or, or, or business owners um, and, uh, and getting their perspective. And one of the really interesting things about it for me was how all these people were looking at the same cer- set of circumstances, right. but from completely different perspectives and opinions. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was fascinating to me and why I wanted to write this book called Five Days, which really captured five days around the, the death and the funeral of Freddie Gray. And I looked at it from the perspective of everyone from a, you know, a member of the Baltimore City Council to a basketball star turned protester to a public defender to, to, the, uh, to, the, uh, to the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. But looking at how this singular incident in a way, both united a city and divided, and at the same time helped to break it apart. Right. And looking at all these all these different uh, opinions and lenses about what does it mean for an American city to have a reckoning, but also what does it mean for an American city to have a rebuild and a healing. And so I was um I, I was really inspired by by the stories of of these individuals, a police captain, mm. and watching his perspective uh, about it during that time. And, um, and really thankful for the journey that they didn't just allow me to take readers on, but frankly, the journey they allowed, allowed me to go on myself, who was still very much trying to process mm-hmm. what I was seeing and what we were all, what we were all witnessing. Well, obviously, um, when you have those kind of diverse perspectives that you were able to grasp and inhale, it certainly helped you sit in the seat that you are now because you're relatable to everybody. That's on a state level. What about on a national level? When people look at Governor Westmore now, if he is successful with what he's aiming to achieve, he pulls this off. You know, once upon a time, there was a junior senator that became a, a president of the United States who also happened to be an African-American. And now here you are in the state of Maryland um, and you're in a position where if you do some big things, some people might be calling your name. And asking you to be that guy and pointing to the fact that it's been done before by somebody in a lesser influential position than you are in right now. So, Governor Moore, I mean, uh, any 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 kind of aspirations for the White House, sir? I'm wondering. None. Zero. None. <laughs> Why not? I, I tell you, I, I'm loving. I am loving what I'm doing. now. I'm telling you, Stephen, A., you are literally talking to a guy who is decades removed from having handcuffs on my wrists. OK who is now the chief executive of my birth state. Okay. Who is actually able to get big things done. And so like, when I say this is going to be Maryland's decade, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. It's Maryland's time. And people are seeing across the country how fast Maryland is moving, how how many big things we're getting done. And we're showing as a state we can do big things again. And I am excited that, and I plan on being a chief executive okay. to see this thing through. Okay, that's fine. I'm loving what we're doing. I'm not talking about running for office in 2024 now. I'm just talking about later on down the road. But I will say this: I mean, you're in a rare situation because, I mean, if you decided to run for the White House, it's not as if you'd have to leave the state. 
I mean, you could still live. I mean, if you win, you don't even have to relocate. You know, just instead of running the state, you're running a governor, go, the, 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 you know, they're running a country rather, but from the same state that you're in now that you were born and raised in. What's the problem with that? It sounds like a good deal to me. Well, you know, you know what? You know, Annapolis is the only state capital that used to be the nation's capital. Yeah. Annapolis, in many ways, is the home and the foundation of, of, of democracy. OK, so uh, so I, I am uh, I, I'm loving being here and I'm loving the fact that Maryland can help show the nation uh, how to get some big things done. Being in a chief executive seat for a particular state, I know you got to go. I've got to run as well. But being the chief executive in a state. Do you think that's what the country needs as opposed to a congressional figure or a Senate figure running for office or ultimately sitting in the White House? I mean, we got President Joe Biden right now. He was a senator for obviously many, many years. Hillary Rodham Clinton, when she was running for office against Trump, she was a senator. Barack Obama was a junior senator. We get those things. But when it comes to running a state, every time I run across a mayor or a governor, they emphasize that as really being, that's really where you you get your chops in, you know, where you, you really get that experience that's needed for such a lofty position. Are you of that mindset? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I mean, there, there's definitely, I mean, I think about being, being a governor, right? And, and being a governor, you, it really is an executive role. And one of the things I remember when I was even running for governor, uh, and again, I was running against people who were statewide elected officials and people who were cabinet secretaries. And one thing I'd always say in the campaign trail is I'll put my executive experience against any of these people mm. because that's what I've done my whole life. I've run things, right. whether it's businesses, whether it's whether it's uh, whether it's some of the largest poverty fighting organizations in this country, whether it's military operations. I run things. Mm. That's my experience. And so I do think that um, that that being being an executive and that's why, you know, I, I love the job. Uh, of being governed. This is the most fun job I've had, honestly, since leading soldiers. And one of the reasons that I love it so much um, is because this really is an executive role where you build a team, where you set out your goals and your azimuth for goals, that you, that you provide guardrails and you, and you provide commander's intent, but then also you let people do their jobs and do their work. Mm-hmm. That you actually can set standards as to what is going to be the goal and the vision, where I always say with my work, where I am, I am, I'm incredibly stubborn when it comes to, to vision, um, but I'm flexible when it comes to tactics. And that also means you provide, you build the best team possible in order to help you accomplish your big goals. So I love being a, being a chief executive. And I think that, um, and that's why being governor is really such a, such a unique job. Before I let you get on out of here, how concerned are you about the state of our affairs as a nation when it comes to this run for the presidency. We have Joe Biden, um, who obviously Democrats, enough Democrats feel are doing a very, very good job, but he's going to be 82 years of age in the year 2024. You've got President, uh, former President Trump, unless he's convicted for crying out loud. And even then, our laws state that he you know, can't stop it from running for the presidency, even if he's in jail, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. And of course, we've got Ron DeSantis behind him, the governor for the state of, of Florida. And we know some of the stuff that's been going on with him. How concerned are you with what you're seeing uh, as it pertains to the run for the presidency? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the I'm, I'm concerned about the, the, the tenor of the debate and I'm concerned about the temperature uh, that we are allowing this thing to go. Our country cannot burn this hot like this. And our country is too good 
to allow this political vitriol to win the day. Uh, but I have to be very honest, uh, you know, and, and this is not a political statement when I say this. When I think about what exactly is it that I need as a chief executive, my answer is, is very clear. Uh, and it's the reason that I am so supportive of, of, of President Biden, because this is not about politics for me. This is about results. You know, I, I think about where just in my first just in my first months as the governor, we were able to you know, do a do a, an investment where we're now going to be working on the Frederick Douglass Tunnel in Baltimore. That's going to create over 30,000 jobs, mm. over 30,000 jobs for the people of my state. I think about the fact that we just had we just made an announcement uh, where that we're going to be deploying over two hundred and sixty seven million dollars going towards broadband expansion, where by the end of my first term, I want everyone in my state covered to have both accessible and affordable broadband. I think about the fact that we're now going on five straight months, five straight months in the state of Maryland of historically low unemployment, historically low for five straight months. I think about all those things. And I think about the fact is. Every single one of those things we're able to accomplish because I have the partner that I need in Washington, D.C. So for me, my support of President Biden is not is not about a political party. My support of President Biden is the fact that he's producing. And when I think about the level of conversation that is that is taking place, uh, it's a very, very easy conclusion for me as to why the person who is currently occupying occupying the seat is the right person for me as Maryland's chief executive. And I believe the person is the right person for the country going forward. The governor of Maryland, the first African-American governor of the state of Maryland, doing a damn good job thus far, sir. I got to admit it. I can't deny it. I'm wishing you <laughs> nothing but the best. We're always here for you. Anytime you want to talk, anytime you want to get a message out, feel free to holler at me anytime. It is my honor and privilege to talk to you. Governor Westmore of the state of Maryland, thank you so much for your time, sir. You take care of yourself. God bless you, Stephen A. Thanks for all you're doing. I appreciate it. God bless you. I'll see you soon. Take care. Peace my thanks again to Governor Westmore. His book, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, is available now wherever you buy books. Once again, make sure to like and follow the Stephen A. Smith Show right here on YouTube. Click the bell to get notified of all of our new content. And be sure to pick up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, see you later. Peace and love. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.